Hey, what's up? My name is Jason Bay. You can call me JBay. Thanks for checking out the Blissful Prospecting Podcast. I'm super excited that you're here. If you're listening to the show for the first time, this podcast is for reps and sales leaders who love landing big meetings with prospects, but hate it when they go to personalize their cold email or their pitch and you know they spend an hour going down the rabbit hole and they're not really sure what to find and they end up wasting a bunch of time when it could have been more efficient to begin with. So if that's ever happened to you before, you're definitely in the right place. And this is part of a new series that we're starting called Leaders. So this is where we interview sales leaders, sales managers, and it's for anyone that either wants to become a sales leader or is managing reps right now. So we have a really cool guest that I'm excited to talk to, Armand Farouk. Hopefully I'm pronouncing your name last right, buddy. But I'm really excited to talk to him because he is one of the people that I look to for sales leadership advice. So how to be a great manager, how to create great managers, that sort of stuff. So let's get to the episode. So one of the things that I have always been curious about, you know, especially as a sales manager, I was always really into optimizing my schedule. And when I've worked with sales managers, I always wanted to help them come up with the ideal week. And the point of that exercise being like, hey, if we can at least know the buckets of time where we want to spend, you know, our effort and focus and attention, and then also that'll help us really look at like, what are the ratios of time that we're spending on particular activities. So for example, one thing I see a lot of sales managers not spending enough time on is like working with their team. (laughs) You know, like the one thing that you're really there to do, you know, working with your team, training them, coaching them, you know, doing one-on-ones with them, giving them feedback on their calls, their cold emails, doing deal reviews, et cetera. So I either see that where it's, you know, a lot of it is spent on either admin time and that sort of stuff, Or oftentimes what I'll see is a lack of focus, you know, really on prospecting, you know, and if you're working with AEs, for example, you know, prospecting is not going to be the only thing you talk about, obviously, right? So how do we really look at our time in terms of buckets? And that's something we're going to be talking to Armand about. He's going to talk about the five different buckets and areas that you should be spending your time. He's going to give you a weekly cadence of what your coaching schedule should look like with your team. And then the other part that he's going to talk about that I'm really fascinated with is building business acumen. So with your reps, especially if you're, you know, at a tech company that's hiring SDRs, for example, or BDRs, these tend to be people with a very, very little industry experience or oftentimes no industry experience. So how do you build that business acumen to get them up to speed to where they understand and can empathize with their prospects? So this is going to be a really fun one. Before you check out this episode, to get a quick favor, is there one other person you think would enjoy this? A sales leader, could be someone on your team, whatever it might be. If you get value from the episode today, could you do me a favor and just share it with them? You could leave a review and all that stuff if you want, but but honestly, what would help most, I just wanna get this good content in front of more sales leaders like yourself or reps that are aspiring to be leaders. So if you could, I'd really appreciate that. Let's get to the interview with Armand. So when you were in college, I'm curious, because I was just doing some digging on your LinkedIn, did you want to get into sales? Is that how you got into finance? Or did you want to be like a finance person? Like what was what was the plan after college for you? Yeah, it was, man, I was a late bloomer for sure. A lot of people in sales that I meet, like they're, they're really charismatic, they're talented. Like I was like this sort of 
overweight fat kid who's five, six and like no confidence or anything like that. And so I was honestly, man, I was like a little bit clueless and, uh, certainly didn't have like the same cold chorus that I had today. And so I wanted to be in finance. I was looking at different internships out there and I saw this internship called financial representative at Northwestern mutual. And I was like, Oh, that's finance. And I started interviewing and they're like, yeah, like, tell me about yourself. Are you a competitive person? I'm like, yeah, I'm competitive. I'm competitive. I played sports. I was a wrestler. And I really enjoyed the first conversation. And then in the next conversation, they're like, great, put together a list of 200 people in your family and friends of friends and put that list together. And we're going to have you reach out to them and see if you would let them sell you insurance. It sounds like a pyramid scheme. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, well, well, this isn't this isn't finance. <laughs> but uh, at the time I was clueless and like, this is one of the only interviews that I had. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'll do it. And so I started to do it and, you know, started the internship. I got the job and they started having you in a room with that list, 200 people making 200 cold calls a week. And I was like, this is weird, but uh, I'll give it a shot. And then you know, I can tell a little bit more about the story, but I went from that awkward kid to being a top 2% producer in the entire country across thousands of reps, just because I, I didn't know any better. And I sort of went in without all the hesitations or innovations that a lot of the natural salespeople would have had. Dude, that's interesting. So was there one thing besides your uh, naivety or naivety or however you pronounce the word, it sounds like was a big part of it. Was there any like looking back like if you were managing yourself, was there anything that kind of stuck out about you as a rep or anything that you were doing or anything like that? I would say it was a couple things. So the first one is, man, the, the hiring for the, for the chip on the shoulder, somebody who's, I love seeing people, and maybe this is like a bias because I like seeing people who went through the same thing I did. I love seeing people who are not supernaturally talented, who had faced some adversity in the past and then figured something out, meaning they weren't the best at the beginning. And then they, somebody taught them something and they were able to change the way they were doing things and then become the best in class at it. Because what that shows me is number two, what I felt was ultimately the most successful. You've probably heard the, the heard your name tossed around opener. And that's sort of the opener that a quote unquote popularized on LinkedIn or whatever. And it just sounds like, Hey, we work with a number of partners in your law firm. It's Armand Northwestern. Have you heard my name tossed around? The way that opener came up is I was just bombing on cold calls. And the number one producer in the whole, whole office saw everyone else slacking off and saw me just burning calls and, and getting killed on the phones. And he was like, hey, why would anybody take a meeting with you? You're, you're, you're 20 years old. You're calling partners of law firms. And there's no way you're going to advise them on their finances. And I was like, well, yeah, I agree. <laughs> this sucks. And he was like, well, if I were you, what I would do is bring me along with you on every single meeting and just say, hey, we work with some of the partners in the office. My name is Brandon at Northwestern Mutual. Have you heard my name pass around? And that'll immediately put their guard down because you work with other people that they know and it's a little bit assumptive and you're in their world. And I swear the next day I booked four meetings in one dial blitz and that level of coachability and that adaptability changed the way that I sell for all the years coming forward. It's so funny when you, I mean, just the two things, there's two very, very simple things that are so overlooked, just even when you're hiring people, because I don't know about you, but you know, a lot of what I hear and then in my experience hiring too, you kind of, when you're getting started, 
you kind of look for the typical like a type person that's like a driver that seems very extroverted that's like how does a lot of accomplishments was an overachiever etc and it sounds like for you like a big thing is like looking for people that have actually experienced adversity before of some sort like people that didn't always get what they wanted in life and then the being coachable part it's like dude if you're able to handle adversity and you're coachable that's like that's probably like 80% of what it takes to be successful at sales, assuming you're not a complete idiot, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Where a lot of people screw up to your point is like, you hire the extrovert, the charismatic person, and that's important, right? I do hire a lot of those people, but hiring that in absence of coachability is the biggest mistake you can make. And it's also the worst manager in the world that you could hire. And the reason for that is, let's say you hire Michael Jordan, right? Every once in a while, if you hire the Michael Jordan, their ceiling is just so high because they're so naturally talented that they will be your top producer for the next five years, for the next 10 years. But every once in a while, there's a false positive on the Michael Jordan. Get somebody who had it all figured out in school. And what you don't realize is they've gotten through high school and college. They've gotten through a school environment, largely through talent, but they haven't been super coachable. And then what ends up happening is they get one year in and they might even beat the other SDRs, but then they hit the ceiling and how far their natural talent will take them. And they haven't had to go through the adversity and they haven't had to learn new things because they're just naturally talented. And you see this a lot with collegiate athletes who are really talented the whole way through college. And then they get to like a D1 school and they just get slammed for that reason, because talent will only take you so far at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. We could talk a whole hour about that. So if we kind of segue into leadership, did you see yourself getting into a leadership position at that time? Like, how did, how did that part of you uh, come out? Ultimately, I realized I didn't want to sell insurance for the rest of my life. And I was super passionate about building a company with who's now my co-host, Nick, of 30 Minutes Presence Club. So I, I left selling insurance to start my own company. And I always was fascinated with building stuff as a kid. I had these, these horrible ideas of startups, like a platform you could pull out of your backpack to cross a river. When I was a kid, I was always fascinated. It's, it's, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty cool, right? It's a novel idea. But that was the idea that I came up with in sixth grade. But I was just fascinated that you, know, you could build something, you could build a team, you could build a product. And this brings back the salesperson to me. You could talk to somebody and they would exchange some ideas or physical thing that you've built for dollars. And that blew my mind. And I knew I wasn't just going to be like the salesperson for the rest of my life. So I ran the startup for one to two years and, and ultimately it failed like many startups do. What was the startup? It was a nutrition supplement vending machine of all things. So, Oh, damn. Okay. Very expensive business to run, right? Yeah, very capital intensive, you know, $10,000, $20,000 per vending machine. We would put these massive protein vending machines inside of gyms. And I would be using the Her Her Name Tossed Around opener, calling every gym in Los Angeles. And that's how we got our first deal. And then we launched five locations in LA Fitness. And then, you know, ultimately a variety of things sunk the business. How many of those vending machines do you have sitting in a storage unit still? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, it was brutal, man. So we had like four or five vending machines. We had to sell I mean, when we went bankrupt, the investors were like, you got to get us our money back. That was hard because they trusted me. They, they had faith in me. And a lot of founders just go dark. And man, for the three months that that business was closing down, I called every single vending machine manufacturer and was like negotiating deals for them to buy back the vending machines for pennies on the dollar and just selling supplements in the gym myself to move things as quickly as possible. 
Dang, dude. It sounds like that was like a really humbling experience, huh? And so after that, you decide I'm going to, I'm just going to go get a job and get back into sales. And yeah. So I left sales at that point. And so that's one part of my career. A lot of people don't know at that point, man, like it was a huge shot to my confidence. I mean, I had, I was its top producer. I was USC's entrepreneur of the year. Next thing you know, my startup burnt down. It's December. All of the fall recruiting for colleges are done. I had already graduated in the past summer and no one wanted to hire the failed entrepreneur with no real work experience. And so I thought about going into sales. And I was like, I can't do that right now. Like I'm just like not in the right headspace. And so I interviewed for six months. I probably submitted a hundred job applications to look at going back into finance or back into strategy. Finally, after six months of just darkness, I got probably three interviews and I nailed two of the three interviews and landed in the Silicon Valley. And that's when I moved up from LA at a corporate strategy and venture capital team. And I was done with sales for three years at that point until I eventually ultimately came back. So how did you end up getting into management? What was fascinating about being in strategy is, and part of the reason I love talking to career changers is immediately I was parachuted to the top of these big, big exec initiatives. I was working for a 200,000 employee company. I mean, in my second month, I was presenting to the CFO and I was like, this is crazy for like Fortune 500 company. And and I just got to see how these people think and you learn really, really rigid, you, you learn these crazy critical thinking and structured thinking skills. And after two, two and a half years, I was like, okay, I've got these sales skills, my confidence back. If I went into sales, I could knock it out of the park as an AE just because I still know how to sell insurance and I was burning those phones and I know I was good at it, but I won't do that forever. I'll come in, I'll knock the cover off the ball. And because I have this background in strategy, I'll make sales manager really quick, but most sales managers hit their ceiling after manager because they can't manage managers. They can't think like a director. They can't think big picture. And by coming from strategy, I know I'll be able to get past that ceiling. And so I came to a company called Carta. I did 225% of my number as an AE and just ripped the cover off the ball. Just crushed it. Yeah. Yeah. And the director of sales development left and it was, I was known as the best prospector on the floor. And they said, hey, take what you're doing and multiply it across 30 SDRs. And so at that point, because I had the strategy background, I was able to build a big pitch deck on how we would structure the org and build org design, but then also bring in actionable sales tactics. And they were like, you got the job. That was it. So how important do you think as a manager then, it sounds like the, I know business acumen is a really kind of general phrase that can mean a lot of things, but it sounds like like a big part of being successful as a manager is really kind of understanding the inner workings of a business. Do you think that like running a business prior to that, did that help at all? Or was it the experience working at the Fortune 500? Like how, how did you develop that, that acumen? You can develop it a, a couple of different ways in sales. The first is if, if you get the chance to either run your own business or have, have mentors around you who don't get caught in the weeds, who like if you're going to bring a problem to them around how the Salesforce UI is slow or how many clicks it takes you to generate an op, you're talking to the wrong person in terms of a mentor, right? You want somebody who stretches you to say, that's all tactical stuff. Like what, what's the big picture strategy here and teach you structured thinking. So I would say, starting a business, having really, really solid executive mentors around you, or the last one, which is oftentimes the most attainable one for salespeople, is if you can go do big enterprise sales and learn how you need to multi-thread a CIO, 
a CFO, a CISO. Now you understand the inner workings of a massive organization. And then when you go into leadership, you'll be able to take those same concepts of enterprise sales and map them to what it looks like to drive forward an initiative to move a team of 20, 30, 40 people. I love that that second piece, especially. Do you think that, because this is something that we talk about a lot with, you know, I talk directly to reps about a lot of this, but in working with managers, the question kind of becomes, well, how do you help your reps develop business acumen, right? Do you think a good strategy would be like, if you work for a company, you know, a large company, like speaking to different departments or heads of departments or anything like that at that company to just get a general idea. Like, Hey, when someone's like trying to sell something to you, like who, how does it work after that? Who do you have to get on board? What happens? What does the buying process look like? Like, I don't even think that, you know, like when, when people are onboarding reps, what I see is the sort of classic, let's teach you all about the product, Armand, make sure you know everything that you need to say. And then, you know, good luck. Very little sales training part, but there's, I think, very little on the, you know, the business acumen part of like understanding the inner workings, even if it's just of your company. Let's just talk about people that sell to our company. Like what happens when someone is trying to sell a product to our finance team, our HR team, our marketing team, et cetera? Like what are the different processes they have to go through and who kind of influences that decision? I don't know. I just kind of thought of that. What do you, what do you think about an approach in doing something like that? That seems like the lowest hanging fruit you know, for a company. I completely agree with you. It's super attainable. You know, now that you mentioned that, one of the most impactful things that we used to do at that big company that I was mentioning, Flex, that I brought to Carta when I was a sales leader is we would call them fireside chats. And we would bring in the CFO of the company. And I did that at Carta. And I would just go exec by exec as a sales leader. And I'd be like, hey, let me just pepper you with questions in front of the sales team. And your job is just tell me how a CHRO thinks, a CFO thinks, and then we're going to see if we can, like, what it would be like to sell to you. And I remember the first fireside chat we did, Carta sells to CFOs. They help companies manage their equity, which is largely a CFO-driven process. We brought in our CFO and we're like, what has made you buy in the past and all of this stuff? And everyone asked the classic discovery questions of like, oh, how much does your valuation cost? It costs you $10,000. Well, I can do it for eight. And he's like, all that stuff is nice. Don't get me wrong. That's, that's really cute. What are you going to tell to me now that I've raised a $200 million funding round and everyone just shuts up really quick. And he's like, I don't care about your $10,000 anymore. He's like, what I care about is if there's a mistake on this, that's going to go to our auditors. Our auditors are going to send it to the board and I'm going to get fired and I'm not going to be able to get a new job. And that's what you got to be able to hit on. And everyone was like, oh my God, we were all thinking below the power line, tactical problems. But this guy is thinking of business or existential crises. And it changed the way the entire team did discovery from that point on. Let's spend a little bit of time on this. The fireside chat, I think, is a brilliant idea. Again, it's like that's something that you can execute on as a sales leader. And you're not relying on the reps to do it. And then you can kind of facilitate the questions, too, to make sure you're actually getting good information if you're going to spend a half hour with your CFO or whoever, right? Because it's kind of a big time ask for them. And the the ideas that I hear sometimes are like, as a rep, reach out to your CFO and see if you can get 30 minutes at a time. And I'm like, God, at a big company, I just don't see a CFO like really doing that. Like they get a lot of resistance, you know, but doing something like this, that's really super organized. You could record the fireside chat and throw that into your onboarding. That could be one of the course modules that people watch is a fireside chat with our CFO talking about what it's like in the procurement department. 
and how they go through stuff and when they push back and how they negotiate, et cetera, et cetera. I did listen to you on your guys' podcast, by the way, the negotiation episode is fire. Yeah, that was a fun <laughs> one, man. <laughs> so, but I want to dig into below the line and above the line, because this is another challenge I hear that managers have where they're like, our reps, they don't want to reach out to C-suite. They don't want to reach out to these VPs at these big companies because they don't really know what to say. And they're afraid that if a CFO shoots them down, the entire company, and they have this fear that the entire company is all of a sudden like they sent out a blacklist about your company and no one's going to want to do business with you. So how do you think about like as you're coaching as both coaching managers and you know with managers working with reps, how do you think about those above the line prospects versus the below the line in terms of the approach, the messaging, et cetera, and even the mindset really around it? You know, what's interesting is I, I just see the above the line people counterintuitively. It's actually one, one step deeper in disco than you would go with someone below the line. So a general framework that you can use to think about things, there are a million discovery frameworks, but a very simple one is situations, problems, and impacts. Okay. For example, let's use Carta as an example. They help companies manage their equity. The situation might be that it's on a spreadsheet. Okay. That's a situation. No problems associated with that situation. The problem for a below-the-line manager, or in general, right, would be that that spreadsheet is cumbersome. It, it takes some time, right? You might pay some legal fees to maintain that spreadsheet. There might be some errors on that spreadsheet. And that's enough to convince the frontline manager that like, ah, oh, this is bogging down my day. Let, let me fix my below-the-line tactical problems, right? What comes after that is the impact of that. And that's where the messaging changes for the exec. The implication of high legal fees is that your board is questioning your spend and wondering why the heck you're still doing this on spreadsheets. The implication of you being on a spreadsheet and having errors, which was the symptom, it was the problem, right? The implication of that is you're going to get exposed to your auditors and get fired by your board, right? And you have to be cautious with that in your messaging, in your outreach, but you're hitting on those problems when you're reaching out to your executives. But then you're hitting on on the more tactical problems, the process problems, the painful problems for the frontline managers that are really, really real and crispy for them. Got it. So the with the impacts, are you kind of buying into, I referenced Skip Miller's book a lot, Selling Above and Below the Line. Essentially with those above the line, is it really kind of connected to one of three things at the sort of corporate level for them? Is it something that's usually connected to revenue, something connected to profit or something connected to some sort of risk? Are those kind of the three big impact areas that you talk about? Or is there a different framework or way that you look at it or think about it? Yeah. I mean, everything in theory can be boiled down to, does it make me money? Does it make me lose less money or does it mitigate some risk for me so that general picture is a little bit more predictable, right? I typically like to go a little bit deeper just because all of the sequences, as you know, that say, hey, we help you save time and money by doing X, they, they just tend to not land. So with the risk thing, like I'll call out like, hey, mistakes on your cap table go to your auditors, right? And that typically is a CFO's worst nightmare. And that's risk. Yes, it's in the general bucket of risk, but it's very, very meaty, tangible, and real for a CFO. Yeah. So when you're talking about crispy, which I, you probably got from Josh Braun, he says that a lot. Yeah, it's not mine. It's his. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just funny because he says it a lot. And then, uh, so I love that, you know, that way of describing it though, because it's like, oh, it makes a, it's, it's hitting an emotional element with this person 
that's more than the logical stuff like you're talking about. One more piece on this that I'm curious with you is like the people that, you know, cause I work with a lot of companies that are selling products typically and with software, especially it's usually the software is helping with a workflow issue. So it's like really easy. They get really bogged down because typically they'll try to sell to the company by going through the people that use the software and they'll kind of do this like groundswell bottoms up kind of approach. And they don't really start at the top. So it makes it kind of like they never actually end up building the case, you know, financially for a company or in the CFO, like you said, talking about how that impacts that person. So a lot of the deals seem to kind of get really stalled there because they're not able to get above the power line. When you're looking at above and below the line, how do you coach reps around where they should start? How do you think about that? Do you mean where you should start in terms of should you start high? Should you start low? Or in terms of if you're starting low, how do you get them up? Yeah. If you're prospecting, is it a good idea to start? And I, and I think it kind of depends on what you're selling to, right? And the virality of, of the product that you're selling. Yeah. How do you think about that? And, and, I, and I'm assuming it's probably circumstantial too, but yeah. Where do you think about like, do I start at the top? Do I start at the bottom? Do I do both at the same time? Like, how do you think about that? It's tricky for, for big, big, big enterprise sales, right? Like we're talking like in the tens of thousands of employees, it's hard to do it all at once. But I don't know if, if a lot of the people listening are doing the, the 20,000 person multi-threading type of conversations. If you're going for like solid SMB, middle market SaaS, even lower scale enterprise, then even from an SDR workflow standpoint, I've never been a fan of like, okay, I'm going to reach out to these three people first. And then if these three don't respond, I'm going to reach out to these next three and then the next three. The reason is one, the cognitive load on your workflow then becomes very, very difficult to manage as an SDR, because now you need to keep track of every account and who you've reached out to and who you haven't across what's probably a book of 200 plus accounts. And that, that generally is like a really workflow intensive process. And so what I suggest is you're typically going to find, depending on the size of the account, for an SMB account, you're looking at probably like two to three solid contacts. For a mid-market account, it's probably closer to five. For enterprise, you're getting closer to eight to 10 contacts. And that's going to be a healthy mix of above and below the line people. And you're going to break up your messaging into above and below the line. And nine times out of 10, what happens is the above the line person doesn't necessarily take the meeting, but they'll pull in the right people on their team and you'll get a sense of what they care about. So you've immediately penetrated through that gap. And so I'm a fan of doing both, not just limiting yourself to one. Me too. Yeah, you gotta do both. You don't know where, I mean, a lot of the deals that I end up getting the bigger ones, it starts with someone that's at a manager level. It just loves the content, right? And they just champion the process all the way through. Okay, I wanna shift gears a little bit because uh, I think a lot of the stuff that we've talked about is definitely applies to being a manager because these are some of the things where you have to kind of coach your reps around and also think about, you know, you talked about reducing the clutter and like the workflow, which we'll kind of zoom into that here in a second. But I'm kind of curious if we zoom out a little bit and look at a manager's, you know, kind of the buckets of things that they should be thinking about. How do you approach that? What are the kind of different buckets of areas where they might spend their time you know, focus, attention, that sort of thing. This is a tricky one. So let's talk about the uh, frontline manager piece of it. Again, it's going to depend on if your organization is growing or not. But usually, I mean, if you just think of it in terms of a life cycle of a rep, 
I'm going to hire a rep. And the number one most important thing on your team is hiring the right people, right? That is 80% of the job, just hiring amazing and selling amazing people, right? From that point on, I'm going to train the rep when they get onboarded and ongoing and moving forward. And then I'm going to coach the rep and then I'm going to manage their professional development. The last piece is I'm going to do org level work, everything from systems to exec presentations to roll up forecasting to the CFO, all of that good stuff. So those are the, the four or five buckets that I typically tend to think about. How you distribute the weight of how much time you spend in each of those buckets is really dependent on the state of your team. Are you doing a turnaround? If you're doing a turnaround, you're going to spend a heck of a lot of time more on the making sure that your team gets back on track versus just like hiring people, right? If you're doing like a sustain and expand, what you're doing is probably like focusing on hiring because you're in a good spot and you're growing and you're focusing on like constantly coaching and tweaking with your reps to get them to that next, next level. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Okay. So you brought up a couple terms that I think are important to distinguish the difference between. So you said bucket number two is training and sort of this ongoing development bucket, but the third bucket was coaching. So what's the difference between coaching and training? Because it's a really important distinction to make. Extremely different. Anybody's like, yeah, do you do a lot, do you do a lot of training for your team? It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I go in on deals all the time. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's not training. That's uh, you watching some gong calls, right? Or like coming in on a deal and jumping in with your own questions every once in a while. That's not training. That is coaching. And that is very important. That's what most sales managers do. Most sales managers throw training over the fence to sales enablement because they don't see it as important. Here's where sales teams get off track is going back to the Michael Jordan effect is they hire a bunch of Michael Jordans, right? And those Michael Jordans do really, really well. And then they, they can't, you can't hire 30 Michael Jordans, right? And so they hire some, I don't know, call them Scotty Pippins or whatever. And because they haven't created the Chicago Bulls, because they don't have a, a Phil Jackson per se, right? Those people don't succeed as much. And that's why you need training is your job in training is you're going to take some of the best things that your reps are doing and you're going to build, boil them down into concepts that your team can grasp that you can then reinforce on your call reviews later on. And that's where most people screw up is they don't boil that back up to the team. My favorite feature, not bug of this management style is when people get on a call, I'll ask them, hey, how'd it go? And the first thing they say is like, I know what you're gonna say. I screwed this part up of the call and I should have said this because I remember we learned that three weeks ago and we've said that in every single tape teardown. That is a wonderful feature if you have done training and coaching reinforcement, right? Is they know the quirks of the team. They know what the general style of selling is and they're able to predict how they should be doing that in real time. Yeah. So is it fair to kind of describe it as in training is this, what are the concepts? What are the skills? Like us teaching you something, best practices, how to make a cold call better, opening lines, how to write a better cold email. Here's what's working, et cetera. The coaching is more the reinforcement of the training is how is the individual rep actually executing this, making it work, troubleshooting it, et cetera? Is that the distinguishing bucket for you between the two? That's correct. Another distinction I like to make is usually, not always, but usually training is one-to-many or one-to-n, and coaching, when done well, is typically one-to-one or one-to-very-few at a time. So I want to ask you about that, actually, in the coaching 
piece because I feel like group effective group coaching. And when I say group coaching, I mean with a group of half a dozen, however many people you have, like your individual team, which I usually see half a dozen to a dozen people. I see the group coaching, like doing really good group coaching, not just I get a dozen reps on a Zoom call or I'm on, and then we treat it like a ticket queue. This person has this question. So we spend three minutes on Armand and then we spend three minutes on Nick. And then we go, not like that type of thing, more like where's everyone having challenges and what are the two common threads here? And then how can we sort of coach everyone as a group and then do the individual stuff, the call reviews and the one-on-ones and stuff like that. Was that ever a part of like what you did, like any sort of group coaching? Like I feel like it's a completely foreign concept to people to like to be able to like coach effectively as a group. Hey, we might have a debate on this too. You might say, Jason, I don't think that you can do group coaching. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this, this one's tricky. I'll be honest with you. Have I, have I done group coaching in a repeatable, scalable process effectively? Probably not, right? I've heard it work well though. One of the things that was, I guess, a little bit of a benefit of COVID is, you know, you know, you weren't able to do floor time as much where you just be available to answer questions, to troubleshoot. A lot of times outside of the meetings is when the magic happens on a sales floor where you're able to just jump by and say like, hey, how are things going? You catch someone stuck in something that they wouldn't want to waste the one-on-one time for, right? And in place of that, because we don't really have floor time, we were doing some Zoom floor time or office hours or things like that. And we, we'd encourage the team to come by and have a good time doing it. Like no pressure or anything like that. Let's just like no holds barred. Everyone like bring a couple of different things that you think other people are having problems with. And then when somebody's having problems, I'm not going to be the first person to answer the question. Okay. The goal is for the team to surface the problems that I am like oblivious to because I'm too far out of the weeds and then have the other folks on the team help solve those problems for those people. And you just facilitate that transaction that I've seen work extremely well in the past. I love that concept because the the issue I have with how a lot of companies do one-on-ones and I'm curious to hear what you see too, but most companies don't do very many one-on-ones. There's a few that I work with that do them every week, which I'm like super impressed with, right? That every single person on the team gets a one-on-one, but I'm like, dude, you're talking to this person about how to personalize a cold email in the one-on-one and everyone else on the team would totally benefit from hearing that. So you're just repeating yourself 10 hours a week or however many hours you're spending five hours a week with your one-on-ones saying the same goddamn thing to every single person. It's so much more efficient to use the group to deliver that feedback and then give the person the individual attention they need by looking at their emails or how they're executing it or whatever. It's the efficiency issue that I have with only relaying the information on one one saying just freaking drives me crazy. Well, I know we'll get into cadence and in a little bit later on, but to that point, there's this book that I, I really like called High Output Management. And it was by the CEO of Intel back in the day. And the analogy he talks about in the beginning of the book is, all right, we're going to start you in the breakfast kitchen. And we're going to talk about, you're going to make a, I think it's like an egg sandwich or something. So what do you have to do? You have to you know, toast some bread. You have to boil some eggs. You have to prepare the whatever sauces and the garnish and all that good stuff. And he maps out all these processes. He's like, what if I give you two and I give you three and I give you four? Well, now it takes 10 minutes to make one of those. Are you just going to do each for 10 minutes at a time? It's going to take you an hour to make me six egg sandwiches. It's like, no, you need to find the bottlenecks in your process that are repeatable steps and bucket those together. And so to your exact point there, 
there are common activities that I found myself doing with every single SDR on the team. And so what we started doing is on one week on, we would do group cold call reviews and everyone, it was on the team to bring your calls to the table. And then on the off weeks, we would do group email teardowns where people would throw their toughest email ejections in a Google doc. And we would write responses live in front of the whole team and have like some really funny interactions all the way from like, Hey, say whatever the heck you want on this email and go really bold. And then, okay, let's taper down a little bit. And then what you found is that a lot of people wouldn't bring those like tactical nitty gritty problems to the one-on-ones. You get to talk about the, the big stuff, the professional development, the career side of things. And that's the stuff that ultimately gets people to stay around and gets people to the next level. Yeah. Not to mention the camaraderie that it builds between people. Yeah, I think this is so important in a remote environment too, where people are doing a what's, what's a pretty hard job that is kind of done as a team. People are used to being on a sales floor together with people and you create this environment where people look out for each other and help each other versus trying to get one up on their coworker. I mean, I'm sure you've had those reps and you probably totally. fired them where they're just not team players, dude. And, and like, they don't even want to share what's working for them because they have such a fear-based mindset around, well, if I share this with you and it helps you, that's going to take something away from me, which is like such a bad, like toxic vibe to have on your team. Yeah. I mean, and, and you put the trainings, you put the, the, the group coaching on the team to buy in. And, and we set that expectation in the hiring. Again, a lot of people, they hire sales trainers, they pay them tens of thousands of dollars, and then they, they throw it over the fence, but they, they, they don't implement any of the, the principles in their hiring, in their tra- onboarding training, in their coaching moving forward. And every part of the process culturally, and then from a skills standpoint, we're constantly trying to reinforce the principles that we set out on the team to produce like some consistency in the most positive way possible while still preserving some creativity across the team. Yeah. Let's hit on the creativity piece. Cause part of what I wanted to ask you about, so this is kind of the fourth bucket. It sounds like there's like this development bucket where it's kind of like you work on the individual. Is that what that bucket is? That's right. Okay. And creativity might fall into that bucket, but how do you, how do you think about the amount of autonomy that the individual rep is given to try things themselves, how much you're thinking about how this job fits into their career goals, like all the kind of big picture kind of stuff. And then the stuff that allows them to kind of get what they need out of the job. How do you, how do you think about it and approach that part of it? A lot of people, when they're hiring SDRs, sales managers will hate me for this, but they're like, man, I got to hire the SDRs who like are going to be my A's. They want to be A's so bad do you remember when you were 20 years old, what the heck you wanted to do? And was that right? Was that correct? The first time wasn't for me. I mean, I told you the story at the beginning of this thing. Like I thought I was going to be a billionaire entrepreneur. And then I thought I was going to be a finance guy who turned into an, an insurance salesperson. And what happened is the experiences and the mentors around me shaped me on the path that I'm on and got me to, to the place that I'm at, that I'm at. And I, I wouldn't have expected that at all. And so my goal when we're hiring people is we're going to hire people who generally want to be great and they want to learn. They're coachable. They're hardworking. They bring energy to the table. They're excited to be here. And we're going to build a culture that helps mold people because they love the place so much that they can't deny being an AE as the next step because they love what they're doing. You can have a purebred salesperson go into an SDR role in a bad organization and never want to be a salesperson again. And so that's the first thing is hiring in terms of career goals, I think is 
a little bit off unless it's a complete red flag where it's like, I don't want to be an SDR at all. Like I just want this job so I can get my foot in the door. Probably don't hire those people. Right. So it's not bad if the person doesn't know what they want to do as a career, which I feel is like a huge unfair expectation to have anyways. And there, there always ends up being this thing where you have a BDR or SDR team full of people that, that are looking ahead to what the next step is. And they hate the job because they're like, they came in with the pretense that they could get another job in a different department or could become an AE really quickly. And like, versus like, Hey, this is the job. Like, what are the things that you can learn from this job? Like there's no better job in my opinion for a young kid. And it, I feel old saying kid, cause I'm only 31, but a young kid out of college, 22, 23 to build business acumen at that age, you get to like prospect and talk to business executives. Like I, I can't think of a better way to learn like on the job training and get paid for it and develop that business acumen really quickly. That's going to help you in any sales position that you do. Totally. I had this girl who came onto the team and she was like, you know, I thought I wanted to be in sales. I came to, to Carta because it's an awesome company, but I, I don't think I want to be in sales long-term. I want to be a marketer, which is many sales managers worst nightmare. And I was <laughs> like, I was like, that's awesome. Great. Let me understand your goals. Let me do some discovery on you. Let me ask you a bunch of questions. Why do you want to do it? How, what have you done to get there? What are the skills you think you need to build? Great. Awesome. So now I know where you want to be. I know the skills you think you need to build. And here's the reality is you're in this job now. Okay. I am 100% your biggest backer in getting you to those goals. And me understanding your goals on the professional development side allows me to push you forward very fast in that direction from a coaching standpoint, which is one of the other buckets. And so understanding the goals is the first piece. And so for that girl, from every point moving forward, we in our weekly one-on-one, we would talk about how she's writing her sales copy and what that would mean for marketing copy and how she could tie the marketing that we're doing on the website or their customer's marketing that she was going after to what you're writing in your sales emails. And I was like, you're going to learn content writing here. You're going to learn big scale marketing. And she was a horrible cold caller and that's okay. But we got her to lean into her strengths. Next thing you know, she wasn't hitting quota. She wasn't hitting quota, wasn't hitting quota. In her last month, blew past quota because she was doing it on her own terms and then went into marketing. And she was like, I learned more in this month than I have in my entire career because I was focusing on stuff that was going towards what I wanted to go to, but it was still in the realm of sales. And that was like the the ultimate positive outcome for someone like me. It's that personal connection. It's like what it makes me think of is no different than in your cold email or your, your pitch or whatever in a cold call is connecting what's important to the prospect with what you're reaching out about. It's like connecting the dots and those two things is what gets people to want to take a meeting. And it's the same kind of thing here. It's like, if you want people to be more interested in their job, get more interested in them and like what they want. And then your job as the manager is to connect those two. This is something I always did. I really love that part. I want to get to just before we run out of time. So I got two questions here. Like when you look at these five buckets, let's assume that a company's not hiring and you could kind of create your ideal week. How much time do you want to be spending in you know, buckets two, three, and four, like the actual time where you're working with reps or your team or coaching them or training them? Like how much of your time do you want to be spending in that area? The short answer is a lot because the number one, I mean, you, you do two things really, not to like totally throw the buckets out of the window is you hire good people and you make sure those good people are successful, right? And so half the job, and this is outside of like the nonsense forecasting and pipeline reviews, half of the job is making sure that people are becoming better salespeople. 
And so in terms of a cadence, again, bucket those things together. The first thing we do is we do a Monday morning meeting and many sales teams do that, but we're using that as an opportunity to pull in some professional development, pull in some coaching and reinforcement in real time. And so that consists of public commitments, including commitments from the manager on things that are controllable that you're going to do this week that you're promising the team you're going to do. And if you don't do it, we have fun consequences that are totally non-mandatory, right? One of mine was if I don't make sure that I deliver this training by next week, then I will eat Greek yogurt for an entire day. And I missed and I had to eat Greek yogurt for an entire day. Are you lactose intolerant or something? Is that? No, but just who wants to eat Greek yogurt for an entire day? Like it's horrible. <laughs> feel like an old man. So that's the Monday morning meeting. First thing in the morning on Mondays gets people excited, having fun with it right? On Wednesdays, we do Wednesday morning sales builders. And those alternate in topics from fireside chats to cold calling trainings to, again, it's more like the one-to-many approach at that point. And then on Thursdays, we're alternating week over week, cold call reviews, which is more coaching, and email teardowns, which is, again, more coaching oriented. And then on Fridays, we like to do a fun dial blitz on the floor where we give out Amazon gift cards. All of that is really in the training and then one-to-many coaching bucket. From that point on, in your one-on-ones, you're getting deep into professional development and you're getting deep into the the person-specific problems that you couldn't bucket. And so I do prefer that managers do a weekly one-on-one with all of their reps and they look back on the previous week and look forward to the next one. If you kind of look at how many hours per week you're taking a rep off of the floor, you know, figuratively speaking there, how many hours per week are they spending away from doing their day-to-day job and sitting in these trainings and coaching calls and doing one-on-ones and stuff like that? These meetings are not these like massive five-hour meetings. Like you want people to be geared into selling time. If you break down each of those, Monday morning meeting is 30 minutes. The call reviews and the email teardowns are 30 minutes as well. That's one hour of meetings. Plus I'm going to do a one-on-one with you, which is another 30 minutes. So there's 90 minutes, right? From that point on, we're going to do a training. We actually rolled those back to every other week. And they're typically one hour, sometimes shorter. And so you're looking at maybe on average two, two and a half hours per week, less than 5% of your time as a rep in a 40-hour work week dedicated to making sure you're becoming a better rep and feeling part of the culture and working on your goals. To me, like if you're not spending at least 5 to 10% of your time on your own professional development, then you're just spinning your wheels and cranking dials without seeing the forest from the trees. Yeah, definitely. It's it's kind of like, yeah, I think a lot of this is like working out. It's kind of the consistency over time. It doesn't sound like a lot of time, but the consistency of this, and then obviously you as a manager coming in and bringing the fire, right? With your content and like being prepared and not wasting people's time, like is really important. Dude, this has been awesome, man. I, I got a couple more questions for you before you take off. First question is like, if you could go back and give yourself advice as a first time manager, what would you say? You got to seek first to understand and have a perspective on things. Don't waver on everything. It's, it's important to, to have principles and perspectives on how, how sales should be done. I came in pretty hot as a manager, as many first managers do, because I, I was a really successful rep. And I was like, I'm just going to make sure that my team does, does all of this playbook. And then I met the, mar- the girl who wanted to be in marketing. And my playbook of asking people if they've heard my name tossed around wasn't going to work for her. And I learned that real quick that sometimes as a manager, you're going to ice people out of the room if you're super rigid 
Uh, they're also the managers that say like on a company, you, have, you need to dial down every single name in the list and you can't move on until you get every single name in the list. Like that level of rigidity is the plague of old school sales teams. So that would be mine. <laughs> I love that one, man. And then if you had to recommend two resources, you already recommended one, but it could be books, podcasts. By the way, I do recommend everyone checks out your podcast with Nick, 30 Minutes to President's Club, which I talk about a lot and recommend. It actually goes in our newsletter to everyone that signs up too, as one of the podcasts they should. So besides that, what are like two resources that you recommend that managers check out and consume? The first one would be the, the high output management book that I recommended. And, and that one was just super, super helpful for me. The second one, this is going to be a probably a little bit of a cop-out because it's not one resource, but I would suggest everybody, like your, your team has some sort of gap, whether it's industry knowledge, sales knowledge, or something like that. And oftentimes like managers think subject matter expertise is overrated because I'm a manager now. I don't need to know everything. I would suggest that you go and figure out what the gap is. If it's you're selling financial products and you need to learn more about finance, pick up a finance podcast, right? If you suck at cold calling, listen to some episodes about cold calling, right? And go and get in the weeds with your reps a little bit so that you can teach them things and you don't get jaded over the 10 years once you've stopped selling and you've been managing people for 10 years. That was a super fun episode. Uh, I learned a ton. My biggest takeaway was probably this idea of doing fireside chats. I just love that. I think you could even go a step further to do fireside chats with your clients as well. And you make sure to record these and make them part of your onboarding process as well and really dissect and transcribe them so you can get the language. So that's awesome. Hey, before you take off two things, if you want to check out more of Armand's work, make sure to check out 30 Minutes to President's Club, his podcast really super good podcast. I've been a guest on there a couple times by the time that you listen to this. And the other thing too is he is hiring and looking for reps at his company. So his LinkedIn profile is in the show notes. So just open up your podcast player, whatever you're listening to, and it's hyperlinked right there in the show notes. So make sure to click on his LinkedIn profile. You'll get to see a little bit more about his company and what they're doing and who they're hiring and then hit him up straight on LinkedIn if uh, you can help out. So I appreciate you tuning into the episode today and we'll talk to you soon.